Katie uh, often gives her students like a review packet before a test, and very often they'll ask, do we have to do the whole packet? And her typical response to them is, you get to do the whole packet because then you're going to have a lot of practice before this test you're going to take. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that feeling of, this is something I don't really want to do, but I have to do it, or I'm supposed to do it. And we might call these obligations, or duties, or maybe uh, responsibilities. And I'm sure maybe many of you are different, but I don't really want to pay taxes, but it's something I have to do. And sometimes I don't really want to follow the speed limit, but we all kind of, you know, fudge it a little bit to go as far above as we think is safe, but really maybe, I need to get here fast, we don't want to pay the speed limit, but we have to. I just want to you know, show some things that uh, that you don't want to do, but you have to do. Work. Work. <laughs> Work. Something we have to do, but don't maybe don't want to do. Clean the bathroom. Clean the bathroom. Oh. I, you know, I had a bunch of things that I thought of like that, and then I was like, actually, I don't have to do it because Katie has <laughs> generously volunteered. Like, I'll clean the bathroom, and I'll, you know. I take up the garbage, wash off the juice, like her downfall of the garbage. But you got to clean the bathroom, dusting, I really don't like dusting. Anything else? Other things we have to do but don't really want to? Clean dishes. Clean dishes. Change dirty diapers. Change dirty diapers. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely not fun. I want to go deeper on this idea of what parts of being a Christian might we do because we feel like we have to do them, not because we want to do them. I'm not asking you to say, here's a part of Christianity that I'm doing because I have to do it. I'm just saying in general as Christians, what are like some things we might feel like we have to do but don't want to do? What are some of those things? Loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor, yeah. You had a very like literal situation with your neighbor that was difficult to love, yeah. Pick taxes. Pick taxes, alright. I feel like that's kind of like an honoring the government type thing. The other things that we feel might start feeling like we have to do as a Christian. Be kind to people who are not kind to us. Kind to people who aren't kind to us, yeah. Think about maybe some of the um, things that are just part of our every week uh, stuff that we do as Christians. What are some of that? What are some of the things we do every week that might become, oh, I feel like I have to do this, but I don't really want to. Be patient with people that interact with your work. Be patient, yeah. Get up early on Sunday instead of sleeping mm-hmm. in. Get up early on Sunday instead of sleeping, although it wouldn't really work That's for us because Hudson's up at 5.30 anyway. <laughs> You have to change out of your pajamas. Change out of my pajamas. What do you mean? This is what I wore. No. <laughs> yeah, I've got to get up. So we get up early on Sunday morning. I don't really want to do this, but I feel like I have to. Could be praying, like, oh, you know, that those prayers we might say, like, okay, at night, I'm going to pray before bed, and we kind of maybe have our routine that's like, I pray for these things, and it's like, I'm not really feeling a great desire to do this, but I feel like I have to, or I should do this. Or maybe reading our Bibles, that could be a thing. Like, oh, I know I'm supposed to do that. Put other people before yourself. Putting other people before ourselves, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things we can maybe think of that are like, this is kind of part of the package of being a Christian. These are the things I'm supposed to do, 
These are the things I have to do. These are the things I should do. But we might do them feeling like, but I don't really want to do those things. They're just there, and I know I'm supposed to. And we might have trouble with that. As we're going through this series to celebrate Christ's birth, thinking about the greatest gift exchange ever, uh, Christmas is a time of gift-giving. And that gift-giving is a reflection or a reminder of, well, God gave the first gift. I don't actually know if that's how it started, but I'm, that's how I want to use it in our life. Um, we have a little kitty got this nativity that has Mary and Joseph and has Jesus um, in, the, in the manger. And then we put it in a box and put it under the tree. So at Christmas, when we open our presents, it's like, okay, we open this box with Jesus in the manger, then we go put it in the nativity, reminding us, okay, this is the, the greatest gift we're actually given here, of how God, 2,000 years ago, so loved the world that he gave his beloved son for our salvation. And this week, uh, we're once again in the letter of 2 Corinthians, that's what we looked at last week, uh, written, Paul, Apostle Paul wrote this to the, the ancient church of Corinth around you know, 50, 60 AD, uh, so it's this old letter, but this is a church that he helped start. He planted this church with some other people, with a team of others. Then he would write letters to them to help instruct them further in what they're doing. And Paul at first started as this opponent of Christianity. I mean, can you imagine somebody in our town or in our county today who's just a, even a violent uh, opponent of Christianity, trying to shut down churches, trying to you know, get, catch Christians doing bad things. And this is what Paul was like. And all of a sudden he had this radical conversion from being this person who's murdering Christians, having them stoned to this person who's the greatest evangelist ever uh, in church history. And we saw that last week Paul discovered, I've been reconciled to God through Christ. All the bad things I did, I've been reconciled to God through Christ. And now Christ is sending me as his ambassador to make an appeal on people to people on behalf of him. Be reconciled to God. Jesus has done it all. I want you to be reconciled to him. And if we've surrendered to Jesus, this is also our story. That we have been reconciled to God through Christ. And then now Jesus sends us out saying, you are now my ambassadors, imploring others, be reconciled to God through me, through Jesus. And so we get sent out to make God's appeal uh, to people. And last week in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, we were in 2 Corinthians 5, but now we're in chapter 8. And there's a big backstory for what happens here, is what, what he's talking about. For a number of reasons, the church in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. Uh, the money was scarce, food was scarce, and they were being uh, oppressed uh, and persecuted by people who were, you know, Jerusalem's like the center of Israel. And so they're trying to be these new, these Christ followers, saying, Jesus is, we read in our statement of faith, Israel's promised Messiah, but there's a bunch of people who said, no, he's not, especially the people that had Jesus killed because they think he's a fraud and a fake. And so they're trying to live their Christian lives in Jerusalem, and it's difficult. Resources are scarce. They're being rejected and ridiculed and persecuted. And so for a number of years, uh, the Apostle Paul worked on a collection of aid for these churches to relieve them in what they were going through. And one of these churches that he asked to help was the church in Corinth. And about a year earlier from when he wrote 2 Corinthians, they had begun this collection. They had desired to get involved with it, and they had started it for first with this willingness and eagerness, but for some reason they didn't complete it. For some reason it got put on pause, and possibly because, as we talked about last week, Paul and the Corinthians had kind of a rocky relationship. So it might have been like they got it started with it excitedly, and it's like, you know, things are, aren't going well between us and Paul, and he's the one who got us into this, like... We're just not going to do it uh, anymore. In this passage, Paul's following up with them, saying, it's been a year, guys. Uh, let's get this done. Their relationship has, has been reconciled. And I really enjoyed studying this passage because I can 
very much relate to how Paul is talking in this passage and the way he's trying to get them to do something. Because there's many activities that we do as a church that I really want everyone to be involved in. I feel like this is good for us. This is us obeying Jesus. This is something I want us to do. But I don't want people to do it because they feel like they have to do it or because they feel like they're supposed to do it or because they don't want to let me or someone else down. So it's like there's all these things that are like, these are the things we do as a church and they're so good for us. And yet I don't want to say, you need to do this or else kind of thing. It's like I want people to want to do those things. And as soon as it becomes that I have to, I'm supposed to, or I can't let Mitch down or other people down, then it be, something gets twisted there. And so Paul's in that situation. He doesn't want them to feel like they have to participate in this thing. He wants it to come from the heart. He wants it to be genuine. He wants it to be an expression of love. And he wants them to—he he does want them to take part in this collection, but he wants them to want to do it of their own free will. And so the way he goes about trying to complete this collection uh, for the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem helps us understand uh, why we should want to do things as Christians. Why do we do the things we do as Christians? And, and just think of that for yourself. Of all the things that you're involved with in connection with God or Good News Church, why do you do those things? Why do you do the things you do as a follower of Christ or as a Christian? And verse 8 gives us an important starting point in answering this question of why do we do what we do as Christians? And he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. So he makes it clear, participating in this collection, giving some of your resources to help these other Christians that are suffering, this isn't a command from the Lord. This isn't a, a command from Jesus. And So I'm not commanding you to do this, but I want it to be for a different reason. And commands coming from Jesus should be obeyed whether we feel like it or not. They're not you know, optional. They're not divine suggestions. When Jesus tells us to do something, we ought to do it. If we read it in the Bible, if Jesus says, do this, we should do it. No questions asked. And Paul is, Paul is saying, I'm not commanding you to participate in this. But he says, You're, I want you to participate for a, a different important reason. And so let's reread verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And so Paul sees their participation as a proof, a proof that their love for other believers is genuine. And the Corinthians, uh, if you read the first and second Corinthians, you discover this is a church that was very gifted. The pe- they had a, a lot of gifts as a congregation. I feel in a lot of ways our church has a lot of gifts as a congregation. I mean, we have a lot of I can't believe how what ratio of our church can sing and play a, or play a musical instrument. It's just you know awesome that God's gifted us in that way. And so they had a lot of gifted people, as was evidenced by what Paul says in verse seven. He says. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Because one of the problems they faced as a church was they were very gifted, but they also were a prideful church. And they tended to kind of feel like, I'm very gifted, and so I'm kind of in the superior position. They kind of boast about their gifts, and they would tend to use them not to serve and love others. And this is part of the point of the famous chapter 1 Corinthians 13, all about love. If you have great gifts but do not have love, they're really useless. They don't, no matter how great they may be, they're not worth much of anything. And the tricky thing 
is that if they participate in this collection because Paul commanded them to do it and they feel like they have to or are supposed to, then their participation does not prove the genuineness of their love. If they're doing it because I have to, I'm supposed to, Paul told me to do this, then it's not saying this is how genuine our love is. It's not proving the genuineness of their love because it's really, I'm doing this out of obligation. I'm doing this because I don't want to make Paul upset. He said I had to do it. He says later in uh, chapter 9, if they're doing it because they have to, then it's being exacted from them. They're giving reluctantly or under compulsion. Instead, he describes in in chapter 9, I want you to give cheerfully and willingly and according to what you have as an expression of love. He, He doesn't want them to do it when their heart isn't really in it. He wants it to be genuine, to be heartfelt. He wants it to be an act of grace, not an act of obligation or duty um, or something they don't really want to do. But at the same time, he doesn't want it to be those things, but he really does want them to do it. And so how is, how is he going to convince them to do it? How, how does he persuade them without commanding them? And we're going to go through, um, we didn't read them all. These are uh, scattered throughout verse, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9. But I'm just going to go through them quick. How does he persuade them to participate without telling them, you have to do this? Well, first, he gives them an example. Uh, He gives them an example for inspiration. He tells a story of what the Macedonians have done. Uh, In some ways, he uses them as this inspiring example. You know, they they gave generously and sacrificially. And for them, it wasn't a have to, but we get to. We get to be part of this. And oftentimes, telling a story can be more inspiring to us than, you know, me saying, like, guys, we need to be generous. Let's do this. But saying telling a story of how somebody else has been generous and it's like, wow, you know, it kind of inspires us. Like, I kind of want to be a part of that. I want to, I want to do that too. And second, he affirms them. So first he gives them an example. Second, he affirms them. You know, if you're thinking about, I really want someone to want to do something and I don't know how to get them to do that. You can take some notes here and be like, oh, these are some ways I can maybe help someone want to do what I want them to do rather than feeling, oh, I'm just doing it because I have to or because my, you know, my mom or my friend or my dad is hounding me. So second, he affirms them. In verse 7, he asks uh, that they excel in this area as they do in others. Uh, and he's saying there's evidence of God's grace at work in your lives and in your congregation. And he wants them to excel in this act of grace as well. He expresses what he appreciates about this church and how he already sees God working in them. So it's not like, do this or else I'm not really sure you're real Christians. It's like, I want you're excelling in so many areas. God has blessed you in so many ways, and I, just, I want you to participate in this too. Third, he reminds them of their own desire. He reminds them of their own desire. They already started their contribution a year ago with willingness and readiness, and so he urges them finish the work. And he says, "I've even boasted about your desire to other churches, and it stirred them up to want to participate." He's told the story of the Corinthians to other people, and that has got them motivated to participate in this. So he's not asking them to do something that they haven't done, didn't want to do in the first place. It's saying, like, remember, you guys really wanted to be part of this, and let's, now let's, let's complete that. Fourth, he makes clear what he's asking them to do. He makes clear what he's asking them to do. Has anyone ever asked you for help and you thought, I have enough problems of my own. How am I gonna? I'm, wh- why are you trying to? Why are you bothering me? I how am I gonna? I can't give to you in this. I can't. I don't have time for this. But he makes clear what he's asking them to do. That 
he's saying, my desired outcome for you is that not that you would be burdened so that they would be eased. No, we want to... I don't expect you to give what others have given. You don't have to look at the Macedonian church and say, I guess we have to match what they're giving. You don't have to give what you don't have, feeling like, I don't have money for this. I don't, how can I give... You're expecting me to give... I don't know, whatever it is, a hundred bucks, Paul? I can't give a hundred bucks. He's saying, no, no, no. I don't expect you to give what you don't have. If you don't have a hundred bucks, don't give a hundred bucks. Give according to what you do have. So he makes clear what he's asking of them. Fifth, he tells them the purpose. He explains, this is a matter of fairness, where one group shares their abundance to supply the needs of the other group. And he says, give according to what you have to relieve others. You have stuff that you can give, uh, that they are needing. Sixth, he gives them time to prepare, or kind of like time to reflect, time to process, time to make themselves ready. He gives them time to prepare. Those uh, collecting the funds, they're not going to be coming immediately, so it's not like he's standing in front of them saying like, okay, I'm holding out you know, the offering basket, like put your money in the basket, now it's time to do this. He says, no, 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 I'm not even going to come, I'm not going to be the first person that visits you. In fact, I'm setting a team ahead of me and they're going to come to help you prepare your gift to present to the people that are collecting it. So he doesn't want them to feel like they're, um, it's getting exacted from them. He wants them to give willingly, not feeling pressured or obligated. And seventh, Paul separates himself from the money. He kind of shows, like, this isn't benefiting me. There's no way you can say that this is a benefit to me. He doesn't want there to even be a chance that someone can say, well... Paul, and he's kind of had a rocky relationship with money in the Corinthians. Somebody said, well, Paul just wants this for himself. He's going to take his own cut. This is to line his pockets. No, he shows this is for other people's good. It's for your good. This isn't to benefit me. And so you know, maybe I said all those things, and it's kind of like, well, I don't know how to keep all, all this together. But let me demonstrate what this would be like. Let's imagine a, a, a scenario for us, um, and I'll use these, these tactics all in getting you guys to give to a collection. Not for real, but as pretend. And so, church, we have an opportunity to help some people who are really in need. As you know, last year a, a tornado went through uh, Illinois, about 50 miles west of here, and it just made a, did a lot of damage, a lot of considerable damage. And actually, one of our uh, sister evangelical free churches, their, their building got really ripped apart. And so they are in a tough spot, and they've been trying to put things back together, but they just don't quite have the resources. And actually, LifeSpring Community Church, uh, they've already did, did some really creative stuff and took this donation to, to send to, over to them to help them uh, to get this church back together. It's all, you know, their building's all broken apart. And, you know, we actually talked about doing a collection last year. Uh, when this tornado went through, we thought, you know, sh is, there any, is there something we should do to help these churches out? And uh, we considered doing that. And some other churches, when we started talking about that, they're even inspired by our example. Yeah, we want to get involved with this, uh, like, uh, Good News Churches. And as a church, you know, we have a very genuine spirit. And this isn't imaginary. A lot of the other parts are. This, is an this isn't imaginary. We, as a church, have a genuine spirit of humility, of a desire to serve, um, of, a, of kindness, and of love. And I see participating in this as just one more way uh, of us showing how, what an amazing church this is. And we talked about doing this a year ago, but we didn't actually get the process going. Uh, it got put on pause, but now it's time. Now we should get it finished. 
And I want to be clear about what I'm asking you to do. I don't want you to give out of uh, something you don't have. I don't want you to have to feel like, well, gosh, I didn't have all these problems in my life. We all know that you know, we have problems in our lives, stuff going on, perhaps financial problems. But I'm not asking you to give what you don't have. Uh, what we want to do is give out of whatever we have an abundance of to supply their needs. And if we have an ability to help someone else, we want to, we want to do that. We want to be a part of that. And I want you to be able to give willingly and cheerfully. So we're not going to take that collection now. I'm telling you about the opportunity now. We're not going to take the collection now because I don't want to be holding up the offering basket and you feel like, well, I guess i got to give something because I don't want to look bad. Um, but what we're going to do is uh, next week, we're going to pass the offering basket around. I want you to be able to get, have, really think through this, not feel like you're giving under compulsion or obligation, like I have to give this. I want you to take the next week to consider what do I want to contribute? Ask God, what do you want to contribute to helping out this church over west of us? And that'll give you time to prepare your gift. And Brian and Larry, uh, next week, are going to count what was given, and they're going to put it in an envelope, they're going to report to us how much we took, and then they're going to bring it and present it to that church. And so that's what we're going to do to help this church uh, that's really struggling over west of us. And so... That, well, hopefully, that sounded pretty good, right? That used, I used all the tactics that Paul used to persuade them uh, to do this. And if Paul had only said that, and if I only said that, it would have left the most important part out. Because any organization could give that speech. Maybe they would take God out of it, but the Lions Club could give that speech. The Moose Lodge could give that speech. Uh, anybody could have said those things. But the foundational reason for us being generous, giving to help somebody else, uh, was not included in that. And it's the mo- reason that motivates all the other reasons. It's the foundational one. It's in verse 9. So let's reread verses 8 and 9. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Participating in this collection will prove that their love is genuine. And why does he say that? He follows up in verse 9, because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. This will prove that your love is genuine because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Jesus' grace for us makes grace flow from us. What Jesus does for us in our lives is what... uh, motivates us and inspires us to do things in other people's lives. And Jesus' generous giving makes us into generous givers. Jesus' sacrificial love for us makes us into people who love sacrificially. When Paul told the story of the Macedonians as an example in the first verses of chapter 8, he stated they first gave themselves to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then by God's will they gave themselves to us, those of us who are collecting this, this thing. Their desire to participate, to be generous and sacrificial came from their commitment to Jesus as their king. And Jesus is the ultimate example of everything Paul wants to see in the Corinthians. He's the ultimate example of a willing, ready, and eager giver, and even of a cheerful giver, not saying like, well, I guess I have to go to the cross. Uh, you know, but he's a willing, joyful, cheerful giver. Jesus does not give out of compulsion or reluctantly or as an exaction or begrudgingly. And actually, Jesus goes way beyond what he's asking the Corinthians to do. He's saying... I don't want you to be burdened so that others are eased, but Jesus was burdened so that we could be eased 
of what we were under. He gave it all so that he became poor and others became rich. He gave until it hurt. And so there's no way that we will outgive Jesus, outgive what he has given to us in our lives. Verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So you might ask, well, what, what sort of riches did Jesus give up? What's this talking about here? Is this talking about material riches, money and stuff and houses? Well, while it's true that the details of Jesus' earthly life point to um, him not being physically, materially rich, Jesus wasn't really much poorer than the average Israelites. We know his family, their blue-collar family living out in the country in the region of Galilee and Nazareth was kind of like a back, uh, backwoods town. Um, he had a humble background, uh, and during his ministry years, he relied on the hospitality and generosity of other people um, to fund his mission for places to stay, for food to eat. And so Jesus wasn't going around saying, like, you know, I've got all this money, so I'm just going to go on this three-year traveling campaign. But he was relying on other people. But this passage is not talking primarily about how much money Jesus gave up or stuff that Jesus had. But his humble earthly lifestyle put, creates a contrast uh, with what he gave up from heaven. His earthly, humble lifestyle is a contrast between uh, with his heavenly life. This verse points even to Jesus' pre-existence before he was born 2,000 years ago as the Son of God because uh, Jesus was never rich on earth, but he was rich in heaven. And the verse says, though he was rich. He was rich in heaven. The Son of God eternally existed in glory with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And as First John 1 says, he was with God in the beginning and all things were made through him. There's nothing made that wasn't made through him. And he, then he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And Colossians 1 says, He's the image of the invisible God and has every privilege and honor associated with being the Son of God. And all things were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. And through Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 says, He's been appointed the heir of all things. And through Him God created the world. And He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, imprint of His nature and upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then Philippians 2 that Heather read for us gives an in-depth picture of what Jesus gave up. All those verses describe what Jesus uh, was like before he was born. And then Philippians chapter 2, uh, starting verse 6, says, Jesus Christ, who though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means uh, a thing to be used to his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was in the form of God, has all the privileges, all the glory that comes with it, but emptied himself. Didn't empty himself of divinity, so that he was no longer God, but he emptied himself of all the rights and privileges and glory that come with being God, the Son of God. He emptied himself of that and became a a man born as a baby. So the first reality, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, speaks to is the Eternal Son of God becoming human it speaks to the incarnation in, in incarnate. You know, carne is like a word for meat. The Son putting flesh on. The Word became flesh. We read the saying in that song, "Now in flesh appearing, Son of God." Now in flesh appearing, He puts on flesh. And it also speaks to the crucifixion. Philippians two goes on to say, "In being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
During his final hours on earth, Jesus suffered betrayal, mocking, beating, shaming, ridicule, and then finally, death. But the worst of it all was not the rejection of humans, but the rejection of the Father. He who knew no sin became sin, as we saw last week. And the reality is that Jesus gave up spiritual riches in order to give us spiritual riches. Ephesians 1, as we talked about on Thursday night, says we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Jesus gave it all up so that he might give it all to us. And Jesus first became poor by becoming a human being 2,000 years ago, and he became even poorer still when he died uh, in our place. He became poor by giving up the riches of an unbroken relationship with God, dying on the cross in place of sinners. You know, just think about your, if we made this kind of like a, about material or physical wealth, it's maybe hard for us to imagine, okay, spiritual, what does it mean to be spiritually bankrupt, to be spiritually poor? I mean, just imagine yourself is that uh, you have a house debt, so that's, you have mortgage, you have a car with debt on your car, you've maxed out all your credit cards, and you have absolutely no money in the bank. In fact, you owe the bank money, money that you do not have. And so we're in debt beyond our ability to even try to get out of it. And Jesus says, I'll take on your debt. I'll take on your bankruptcy. I will take on your poverty. But it's not only that Jesus is like, I've got all this money, hey, I'm going to come, and I'm just going to pay off all the things you owe, so that you can kind of be neutral again, and I'll you know, kind of still be outside of this situation. But Jesus says, no, I'm actually going to come into your place. I will have all your debt. I will have your mortgage. I will have your car loan. I'll have your, you know, your credit card debt. I'm going to come and I'm going to be poor. And you're going to go and you're going to get all my riches. So it's not only that Jesus makes us debt free and then kind of leaves us and he just still has all his money, all the rest of his money. He says, I'm going to take, we're going to switch places. I'm going to take all of your spiritual bankruptcy, all of your spiritual poverty, and I'm going to give you all of my spiritual riches. We're going to switch places in this. He takes our place and he leaves the palace the royal palace, for, to come live in our, our slum of spirituality. And he says, now you can go live in the palace in my place. And that's what it happens here. He takes on our spiritual poverty, the spiritual poverty of humanity, and then gives us spiritual riches, the righteousness in God's sight, accepted and loved by God, God's sons and daughters, a bright and glorious future. Jesus frees us from the penalty of our sin. He's freeing us from the power of our sin. He'll free us from the presence of our sin. And he took on the poverty of sin in order to free us from it, to give us the riches of adoption as God's sons and daughters, resting in his love and grace. And without Jesus, we're all spiritually bankrupt. And the problem isn't, the problem is that we don't like to admit that. We don't like to admit, you know, coming before God, I just really have nothing. I have debt and no money. We don't like to admit that. And that's why Jesus says in the first beatitude, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, the people who are willing to admit, I'm just spiritually poor, I'm spiritually bankrupt, those are the humble people that are, uh, actually receive what Jesus wants to give them, to say, yeah, my situation is pretty bad, I wouldn't want anybody else living in this, and you're going to let me live in the palace? It's us accepting that, gift exchange with him where he takes our bankruptcy we receive his riches so the big question this passage brings us to for us to reflect on is this does your life demand a gospel 
explanation. Does your life demand a gospel explanation? Does our life as a church demand a gospel explanation? Does my life demand a gospel explanation? Paul is showing us, as the whole Bible shows us, that we do not do what we do uh, because we're obligated. We do what we do because of what God has done for us. And what we do is a response to what God has already done. Our generosity is a willing response to God's generosity. Our forgiveness is a willing response to God's forgiveness of us. Our love for others is a willing response to Christ's love toward us. And so ask yourself, as a Christian, why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why are you here right now? Why do you put checks in the offering basket? Why do you serve to sing? Why do you come and write down things I see in a sermon? Why do you do what you do? And imagine someone asks you, why Why do you go to a church service on Sunday? Why do you help other people when they have a need? Why are you committed to this group of people called a church? Why do you give money to this? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you get together with your gospel community on Thursday nights and write Thanksgiving cards for that nursing home? Why do you do that? And consider, what would you tell them? Would you say, well, I have to. That's what I'm supposed to do. Well, I, you know, I guess I just kind of started doing it. Or you know, that, That's what a good Christian does. And I want you to seriously and honestly consider are there things in your Christian life that you do because you feel like you have to do them? They feel like an obligation. There's no joy in it. There's no trust in it. It's just like, this is what I have to do. <coughs> things that you feel like, I have to do this because I'll let others down. Or I have to do this because I've always done it. Or I have to do this because this is what Christians do. I want you to write them down. You know, if they're coming to mind right now, think this is something that has become a have-to in my life. What, and write that down if, it, if it's coming to mind. And it happens to all of us. We, we forget the deeper why behind why we do what we do. We get into a habit or a tradition or it becomes an obligation or duty. And the reality of the Christian life is that it is something we get to do. You know, we get to stand here before God saying, Yes, before the throne of God. I'm righteous, I'm accepted, I'm free. God loves me. We get to be with God. There's no, it's, it's unlikely that any of us would be in this room apart from Jesus because there's what else would bring us together? We're a church family together because God has said, this is my son, this is my daughter. He's brought us into the royal palace and now we're all his royal kids together. It's all something we get to do. And if you have parts that have become a, a have to, I want you to think about why Jesus is the reason you get to do that. For whatever thing you feel like, I have to do this. Even reading my Bible, I have to read my Bible, which is what we Christians do. But why, uh, does because of Jesus, do you get to do that? And I'll give you an answer for that right now, is that there's no other way you could have a relationship with God apart from Jesus. So now I get to read my Bible and have a relationship with God in that way because the Spirit has come into me and now I see this as God's Word, not just as some you know, old book from 2,000 years ago, but I get to do this. And I, I want you to think about why the Gospel is the reason you do what you do. We want our, our lives as individuals and as a church to demand a Gospel explanation. This is what makes us Good News Church and not do good things church or keep the traditions going church or we do this stuff because it's what we're supposed to do church. That's what makes us good news church. The reason we want to make a difference is because Jesus has made a difference for us. 
Jesus, he's so much more than a good example of what we want to be like, because then that's just another have to. Okay, well, Jesus was generous, so now I have to be generous. No, it's much more than that. Is that when uh, Jesus comes into our life, the difference he makes is deeper than I have to do this to be like him. But what he does is the experience of Jesus loving us changes in, us into people who are like him, not, oh, I have to do this because he died for me. It's like, no, I, I get to do this. This is just an overflow of what I'm seeing him do for me. And that's why our mission statement is first surrendering all of life to Jesus. Why? Because he's loved me so. And now we invite others to do the same. And so for those things that you feel like you have to do, I want you to consider why do you feel you have to do it? Because you've always done it? Because it's just what Christians do? Because if you don't, you will let someone down? Because it's what's expected of you? Because if you don't, God will be disappointed with you. Because if you don't, God won't love you or bless you. Those things you feel like you have to do, why are you, do you feel you have to do them? And once we surrender to Jesus, we're saying, okay, I accept your death on the cross, but then we quickly start measuring uh, how much is in our spiritual bank account and believing that God or Jesus uh, treats us accordingly. However much you are getting deposited in that spiritual bank account is how God treats you. And the good news is that because of Jesus, your spiritual bank account is always full and will forever be full. It's already full. You won't add anything to it. Jesus was rich and became full, of course, that you could become rich. Our call is to live as spiritually rich people, to live out of the spiritual riches that have already been given to us out of a full bank account. Jesus died to give them to us. But so often we reverse it. We, We live like we're spiritually poor, trying to get some... The spiritual points in, or you know, whatever spiritual coupons or something, in, uh, credits into our our bank accounts, that God won't be mad at us. Like, oh, I gotta, I gotta do this. I have to do this to put things in that account because God needs to see something good there for Him to, to love me and be happy with me. I had a professor who said, and I hope that I've lived this quote out. It was it deeply impacted me, and so hopefully you feel this way. He said, some preachers and counselors seem to think that the main part of a pastor's job is telling people to behave. I think it is telling Christians how rich they are. And I hope you've experienced that at Good News Church, that every week it's not about how you must behave, but it's about the gospel, the good news, and then what will, do we do in response to that now? And Jesus, quoting the Old Testament prophets, warns us, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And if we're doing what we are doing because we have to or to feel better about ourselves or to avoid disappointing someone or to earn something from God, then we're not pleasing Him. God wants our hearts to be drawing near to Him, not to just be doing all the external stuff when our hearts aren't in it at all. I mean, to be clear, if God commands something, we should do it because we have to. He commanded it. We should do it whether we feel like it or not. But we also can consider... Why am I resisting this command? Uh, my church community is asking me to do this. Why am I resisting that? Why am I, or why am I feeling like I have to do this? To, and, as, and get down to the reasons. God wants us to love him and love others as an overflow of his love for us. We love, we give, we serve and forgive with an I get to love, not an I have to love. So in closing, we are Good News Church. We're people who have been changed and who are being changed by the good news 
of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And the deeper we go into that good news, the more fully our life will demand a good news explanation. We've been blessed to be a blessing. Why are you blessing me? I've been, I have every spiritual, you maybe don't say it like that, I have every spiritual blessing in Christ, but Jesus has blessed me so much, and so I want, I want to do this for you. I mean, that can be the simplest explanation of how you can explain your life of like, why are you forgiving me? Or why do you always come and make the coffee for our office? Or whatever it is. Why do you always seem to go the extra mile for people? Well, I've been blessed by Jesus, and I want to bless others um, as a response to that. So the next time someone asks you, why are you doing that? Be prepared to give them a gospel why, uh, a good news explanation for why you're doing what you're doing. Let's pray. God, it's... I know I only understand in part what Jesus actually took on for me to be called your beloved son. We really scratched the surface most of our lives. The Lord, would you let us leave here with a sense of gratitude that we have waded in just a little deeper into the, the ocean of your love for us, of understanding what you've done, how you've blessed us, uh, the gift you've given us. Lord, would you let us really feel and sense that we are blessed by you with every spiritual blessing. Would you let flow out in, from our lives to bless others. So name me pray. Amen.